Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, as you know, um, as many of you had made an announcement, Bent has prayed for them. Mike and James are on their route, or hopefully there by now, um, in Kazakhstan. And um, you know, I'm leaving this Friday, and it came really real to me after we received this week the roster list of the pastors, there are 22 of them in that institute, and um, I read each one's little, they have a brief bio of each person, and it was really blessing to read that, and um, it inspired me, and it allowed me to kind of gear up and focus for next week. I'll read you a couple of them. There's one gentleman named, I'm probably butchering these names, his name is Kwanishbek, he's 40 years old, he's been a Christian for three years, he has three daughters, Oh, no. Three children, two daughters and a son, and his wife left him when he became a Christian. And um, he's now just as a he's working as a security guard in a Bible college. He said his reason why he's taking this class with his other brothers is that he wants to be useful for God. Another guy named uh, this is really difficult. Sayed Japar. He's 34 years old. He's been a Christian for about five years. He has he's married. He has one son and a daughter, two-month-old daughter. He's a carpenter. He builds houses. He's a pastor of a church. Say so he wants Christian education to serve God. He says, I left my job and family to get this knowledge so I can preach. So it's a real encouragement to hear such men um, inspired by God to serve His purpose in a really vast territory of of evangelism that could go on and that inspired my heart. Well, today's text is one of those watershed texts. I think James taught this back about seven, eight years ago, old days in the old church. You know, life, I titled this the most important Q&A. In life, we go through life. You know, we all go to, or most of us went to job interview. There are questions posed to you. And depending on how you answer those questions, your life could swing. Your life makes there's a huge difference whether you get a job here or at different places. There's one job uh, in a job interview. This is the most important question I ask when I have a potential candidate. I always ask this, and you could kind of ask yourself what you would answer. I always say this: in a given situation, you have a project, any type of project. I give you ten thousand dollars. That's a budget. And that's, I leave it up to you. I'm going to Kazakhstan for a month. I have no cell phone. You can't get a hold of me. I'm in the mountains somewhere. And you're doing this project. In the middle of the project, it is, you're convinced in your mind, if you spend $2,000 more, what would you do? But I gave you a budget and left. No further instructions. What would you do? Would you spend that $2,000 or would you stay within the budget according to the rules and guidance I've given you? Or do you, would you exercise your... Um, I guess your discernment and choose to spend 2000 because you're convinced in your mind that's better. What would you do? The answer I look for, and I think I pretty much hire, 90% of the people I hire, I hire people who say they would spend the extra $2,000. I look for independent thinkers in the group. So I don't know if you have answered your question. But questions like that, questions in life were posed all the time. And how we answer them, and what our heart is, what heart condition is, 
it makes a huge difference in life. It's like a boat taking off of the port. You may be off one or two degrees when you leave port. You're two miles into the ocean. There's not too much difference. But when you go 100 miles, 1,000 miles, a couple thousand miles, you're, you end up in two complete different places. It is important in our lives how we come to this point. That you're here at church today. You're a member of Cornerstone today. And those of you who are visiting with us today. The reason, why are you here? You know, we, uh, this year for Cornerstone is the theme we have planned a few years back to be evangelism. Next year is the church. So I'm giving you sort of a preview of the crux of what church is to be. You know, the state of the modern church is not in a, not in a healthy state. And the pervasive view of most Christians is that they have not only have low view of God, low view of Scripture, and ultimately it leads on to low view of the church. You know, a contemporary church is looking for things, the church to be more of an organization, maybe even large corporations. Corporations where the pastors resemble more of a CEO, result-driven, bottom-line-driven than anything else. Or some church leaders have become therapists. Right? Therapists. Where it's not the Word of God, but rather the aim is to try to make people feel better. So people would come back. Rather than people who would shepherd. Many churches have become consumer-oriented. Yeah, We live in a consumer society. It's how much we could gobble up. Right? Consumer mentality. It's pervasive in our culture. You know, George Barna said, this consumer demand will intensify and shape the culture of the church. Increasingly, people will demand personalized religion that will satisfy their needs without requiring any sacrifices or commitment. Another thing, political correctness has infiltrated the church and the pulpit where the pastor is pressured not to preach the truth, but just to make people feel better. The sin we don't touch attitude. Never offend philosophy. The church has, in a large, by a large part, has become no different than a psychiatrist's office, Carl Jr., Toyota's, General Motors of the world. That James called this the church mentality. Not James in the Bible, James Shin. <laughs> There's no church in the Bible. The church has become entertainment-centered, people-centered, not God-centered. They employ the devices and the methods, methodologies of what would appear in the Harvard Business Review rather than the Word. Millard Erickson calls this the inverted theology. It means that instead of regarding God as our Lord, whose glory is the supreme value of the church and His will to be done, and regarding Him as our Master, rather, we regard Him as our servant. It's what the church can do for me. It's perceived as church being the meter of our, all our needs, answer to our questions is no longer 
Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as earth on is in heaven. Instead, you'd probably read like this. I am the focal point. Look at me. I am here. I need my needs met. Now. That's the mentality. The, the core of the church, many churches in Christianity today, is disillusioned. Number one, it causes uncommitment. There's no ownership in the church. You know, in a corporation too. When employees just go there to collect a paycheck, that, employee, that company doesn't go far. You know, by far, what is the best airline, in, best run airline in the United States? That's right, Southwest. They surpass all the profits of other companies. Why? Because they have one of the highest employee satisfaction rating. Year after year, they're number one and two all the time. People take pay cuts to go there. Right? Because they're committed to their, to their company. It's similar to the church. As Christians, we should have far more. It's not a corporation. It's a church. The Church of Christ. I think another issue is that it perpetrated and it's probably the biggest influence in the church that has led to a low view of the church is the influences or lack of commitment by its leaders. Hypocrisy in the leadership. The age of exposition of scripture has passed. It has been replaced by age of what, showtime, right? Show business. Truth is irrelevant. What really matters is what people are interested in. They're entertained, they're occupied. Style is more important. It's a deadly shift. Therefore, if your leaders have low view of the church, the consequence is, how do you expect members to have high view of the church? It's not going to happen. And I wanted to study this because James has been focusing on simple truths of Scripture. And that's what I wanted to do also. It's so important. Simple truths of Scripture. The church. Why do we come here? What's its purpose? What is represented here? Whom does it represent? This is why this text, who do you say I am, question that Jesus posed. In discussing the church, we need to ask ourselves, who do you say Christ is? Who is Christ to you? Not just theoretically, Practically, who is Christ to you? You know, Peter's confession went beyond just the recognition. We see in his life, it permeated through his life. Peter spent, after his great downfall of denying Christ three times, the rest of his life, and you see the full impact of the answer he gives here to that question, when he proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this text demands every Christian, every member of this church, or church, universal church, to ask, ask the same question. Who is Christ in viewing our church? You know, today, unfortunately, people believe that believing and following Jesus Christ and belonging to church is a complete, completely separate issues. The question is, can you believe God without being a part of a church? That type of mentality. Do you have to be committed to a local church in, in order to be committed 
to Christ? You know, this answer Christ gives is one of the most significant statements ever made if you're a believer. And it absolutely has no value if you're an unbeliever. Right? When he says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Now, this is the first text the church has ever used in the Bible. It comes from the word, the church comes from the word ecclesia in Greek. It means to call together or called out. Therefore, we cannot define the church without defining who Christ is first. What defines us? Therefore, Christ must be the central focal point of the church. If you're following leaders to go to a church, you're following a program to go to church, you're missing the whole focal point of what church ought to be. Just as a background, you know, Matthew 16 states that you know, they crossed the Sea of Galilee, placed them in Philippi, Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles geographically of north of Sea of Galilee. And this text also parallels there's two other places in Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, and Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. And it also points about a year before Christ's death. He has done miracles by the, many miracles by this point. Fed the 5,000, walked in water, cast out demons, raised the dead. Many things have happened. Now, in the last year of Jesus' life, is there an increasing rejection of him? His opposition by the Jewish leaders happened even um, more during that time. Now, Christ is kind of shunning um, the big crowds at this point. He's sort of going on a retreat with the twelve disciples. The location where they are offered a place where they could be kind of secluded on their own from threat of everybody else. And it comes to a point where Jesus poses this important question. Verse 13 says, he begins by saying, Who do men say that I am? I just said, I, the Son of Man, am. This is very important question to everybody. You know, perhaps for about two and a half years, Christ has worked up to this point. He's built the momentum to get to this point to ask this question. It was premeditated probably. But you know, you think for a moment. You know, it's one thing I learned from Dr. Bookman as well. Think about Scripture. You know, Christ is also omniscient. He knew what, you know, by now just about everybody knew, his disciples knew what everybody else thought of him, right? Especially the Jewish leaders. How they felt about him, how they opposed him. So Jesus was not the point wasn't to ask what other people thought about him. He was driving up to what did the twelve? Who would be in charge of this gospel after he's gone? What did they think? And he found the appropriate time to ask. And they replied, you know, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Then he says in verse 15, What do you disciples say that I am? Jesus was not concerned about the opinions of the people again. He was concerned about their understanding. Again, he is omniscient. He probably knew. He probably knew. But he wanted to validate what he was going to do with that answer. Okay. 
I think Brian's a litigator, you know, an attorney, you know, litigation in front of a courtroom. As one rule of a litigator does, he never or she never asks a question that you don't know the answer to by the witness. You lead them to the question and the point they're going. If it's going to hurt you, you're not going to ask that question, right? So you know exactly how they're going to answer, at least if they're answering truthfully, right? So I think if they give a wrong answer or something, you could also accuse them of a hostile witness and they could, you could turn around on them as well. So it's a, it's a thing. Christ probably knew the answer he was going to get. But the thing was, it's a statement that we'll focus on later on that's important. But Peter, you know, Peter always has been the bold guy. You know, he's the first one when they came to arrest Jesus, first guy to jump out with his sword and, you know, protect him. He rebuked Christ. He was sort of the leader of the twelve, the spokesman. And in, in essence, he's speaking. This is not just Peter's statement. He's a statement on behalf of his disciples, his, the twelve. He's saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And the you here in the Greek is emphatic. It's usually, it's used when used in this form. It's in a plural form. So we can somewhat conclude that he is speaking as a spokesman for the twelve, not just for himself. This was, Peter had just confessed the most comprehensive fundamental truth of Christianity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is the most bold confession. He declares clearly identity of Christ. He validates what John the Baptist said. And another point that he makes here says, the source of this answer did not come from Peter, not come from any person. It says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Christ says this, Simon Bar-Jonah, because Peter is the son of Jonah. They call it Bar-Jonah as referring to his father. And he says, the flesh, not by flesh and blood this has revealed to you, not by human means. You know, when in a Jewish culture, when they say flesh and blood, it means it's, it's a common expression referring to a mortal man, man who's going to die one day. But not by flesh and blood, but by my Father. It's not, Jesus is proclaiming, not by human calculation or intuition. He didn't hear someone whispering in Peter's ear. God had revealed him in his heart. That's sort of the picture in our, in our salvation process, right? That God allows us to see our sins in light of holy God and leads us to repentance. God doesn't whisper in an ear when that happens. It happens when our heart is changed. It was revealed to Peter's heart. And his, Jesus proclaims, the gates of Hades will not come against it or prevail against it. It means the power of death will not prevail against the church, so the church will never die. But we come to a controversial statement. What Jesus says Upon this rock, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. So we have to do a little bit of theological, take care of this issue. The controversy exists. It's a great controversy that exists in that term, the rock. Okay, I'll try to go through it real quickly. For about 1,500 years or so, or more, the Roman Catholic Church has maintained that this passage teaches 
the church was built on the person of Peter. The opinions of all Catholic interpreters is that Peter, Apostle Peter, is the rock. Therefore, he became the first pope, and the, the Catholic papacy has descended from that point. So under the Roman Catholic dogma, because of this supposed divine ordination and apostolic succession, the pope is considered to be supreme and authoritative representation, representative of God. So it's what you call, when Pope speaks, it's ex cathedra, means the, in his official capacity as a church leader, he speaks in divine authority equal to that of Scripture for God. It's infallible. So in order to establish this Catholic argument, you have to assume a few things. Number one, that, that this rock that Jesus referred to is Peter. Number two, that this primacy can be transferred to his successors. And this, the, this transmission can happen without breaking the, uh, the primacy of Peter to the now Pope John Paul, all the way down to every pope. Number one thing is that there is no evidence in Scripture that gives credence to the transmission. Okay. I think, therefore, I would humbly conclude, and I'll present my case, is that the such inter interpretation of that, of today's text, in this fashion, is uh, somewhat presumptuous, and I think unbiblical. I think the New Testament is abundantly clear that Christ alone is the foundation of the church. Look at our church name, Cornerstone, is Christ. Okay? The church is built on no man by Christ, only by the God-man. Christ. You know, Paul, Peter was a great spokesman, great church leader. He preached his first sermon in Acts 2. Leader in the early church. But the apostles were equally, uniquely appointed to teach the word of God and proclaim the gospel. But there's no record in the New Testament in the early church that gives, pays any homage to one specific individual. But what does Acts 2 say? They continued to devote themselves in the apostles' teaching. They gave homage or loyalty and they followed to the apostles' teachings, not to any one man. Let me state three cases why this rock is not Peter, but it is Christ. Number one, the study of the word rock. When it says, not Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Peter in Greek is Petros. And when it says this rock, that word is Petra. It's two different words, similar meaning, but it's a difference between a pebble or a boulder. Right? You're talking a difference between just a rock you find on the street to the half dome in Yosemite. Right? Or it's on a rock on a mountain. Although two words are synonymous, it comes from a similar word, but the basis of that, there's two different words in Greek. And the Jesus that I point to is the rock. In Genesis 49-24, what does it say about the Messiah? The shepherd, the stone of Israel. Right? Therefore, Peter may have been the small stone placed on top of the big 
huge, giant boulder, the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ. Number two, let's compare to the other Gospels. Now, let's think for a moment. Let's take Bookman's theology, method of thinking through Scripture. Let's think for a moment. What happens in the later text in Matthew 20 and Mark's Gospel of 10, chapter 10? What does James and John and his mother ask Christ? The who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, if they had gotten this straight, right? If Christ had proclaimed that Peter was the preeminent one, the church would be built, this is pretty much a foregone conclusion. Who is the preeminent one in that group? But John's mother and these guys ask Christ that question. And also, in Mark 8 and Luke 9, that record the same thing. Similarly, the same event does not record this at all. The Peter's response. All they record is Peter's response. Thou art the Christ. Would Mark and Luke leave out such important fact that which church will be built upon? No. It's a foregone conclusion. It's Peter. It would be clear in the text, I believe. The dialogue focus would be on Peter if that was the case. But this question answer, the answer itself is not important. It is the subject of the answer that is important. Christ. The focal point of this dialogue is not Peter, but on Christ. It's a monumental revelation, but to them it's a foregone conclusion. But this is the strongest case. Number three, the usage of the word rock in the Bible, or the stone. You don't have to turn with me. I'll just read off many of them, and I think it's clear. Deuteronomy, let's go to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, and God of the truth without iniquity, just, and he is right. Psalm 18. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Isaiah 28. Therefore, behold, I lay in Zion the foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. Psalm 118. Stone which the builder had refused is becoming head of the corner. Acts 4.10 To all people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set, and not of you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. Neither there is salvation in any other. There is none other name under the heavens given among men, whereby we must be saved. 1 Corinthians 3.11 For the foundation can no man this is very important. No, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. Okay. Ephesians 2.20, last one. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay. I rest my case. Right? Scripture alone tells who the stone is clearly. What is that rock reference to? When evidence is clearly examined through Scripture, the totality of the Scripture of God's temple 
is built upon Jesus Christ. It is conclusive to me. Although Peter's answer was absolutely correct, he was a leader, gung-ho leader after Christ left, but he was not Christ. He was not the foundation. You know, there's a White House press secretary. What is his name? Scott McClellan. He took over after Ari Flasher. He speaks sort of on behalf of the president, but he's not George W. Bush, right? Similarly, Peter is not Christ. The point Jesus is making in this text for the disciples to unequivocally understand who Christ is. The church will be built on him. This text clearly establishes Christ as a church, the master of the universe, universal church, and the head of this church. You know, this reference to the rock, the foundation of the church, you know, when the disciples went forth after Christ ascended to build the church, they did not preach on behalf, or preach in the name of Peter wherever they went. Did they ever require people to believe in any faith in Peter in order to come to the church? Or did they baptize people in the name of Peter? Certainly not. In preaching to sinners and bringing them to salvation, no prominence was given to him. It is only Christ who was given that prominence in the church and the foundation in him well, because he died for it. He died for it. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. It is him who plants the churches, builds them, sanctifies them. It's all him. You know, the statement we focus on, the recognition is very important. The two points I'll make in the statement, that I will build my church. Again, number one importance, that Christ is supreme. Christ is the head. You know, remember I said Ecclesia means the called out ones, called together. What does Romans 8.28 say? Those who are called according to his purpose. The called is the church. If you don't belong to the church, you may exclude yourself. So it's absolutely critical to know who Christ is. You can't separate Christ from the church. You can't separate your salvation from the church. You know, we talk about obeying God, honoring Christ. It's honoring this call. The only one who deserves this. Why? Who deserves this? No, this I love this text about Christ. The great, one of the best descriptions of Christ in the entire New Testament. If you turn with me to Colossians 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so he himself might become to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. These things are only true of Christ, not Peter, James, John, or anybody else here throughout history of man. Only one that is true to is Christ, the image of the living God, the invisible God, 
was made visible. For Him it was created. We were created for Him. This world was created for Him. Christ brought this universe into being. He's the creator and th- holds everything together. The order of the universe and even our salvation. He is the author. He gave that to us. And He holds that salvation because it was up to us. We would lose the salvation. Right? And he says in verse 18, He is the head of the church. Peter is not mentioned in this text at all. He is the head of the church. Jesus in his relationship to the church is the supreme head. There is no room for any person, in all due respect to Peter, there is no room for any person on the top, for the top seat in the church, but Christ alone. That we may boast about Christ only, of no man. This church should not be represented by James or Bob or anybody else here. Only by Christ. Do not take that glory away from Christ. Second point, we recognize Christ. And we have to also understand the composition of believers. Believers. And Acts 2.42 says, They continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. And that's the number one plan for the master, for the church, is the saved congregation. Maybe it, come to church, but you can't, if you're not a believer, if you don't see Christ as the head of your life, you cannot be a member of the church. This is fundamentally why we hold church membership in high view. How many churches do you go and make you take a 13-week Fundamentals of Faith class? We, take, we hold that in high view because I believe that's our obligation. Must be a believer. We gain entrance to the body, first by salvation. But we all, we're all saved individually. Our aim in that is Ephesians 1.4 that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The unsaved membership has no capacity to overcome self-will, personal agendas, or love of sin. Sin cannot perpetrate the church. You know, commitment to Christ is an option, not an option for a church member. Sort of like a church, casual churchgoer is a, one of the biggest oxymorons that, that exists. You know, interestingly, just after this comment, Matthew 16, 24, just a few verses later, what does Christ say? That's when he talks about, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. It is all in succession line with the church. He established what the churches ought to be. Things that you need to deny yourself and follow me. Then what's, what does it say? Paul say in Romans 12? That we need to be present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. I think conclusion is that that the church exists. It's on our mission statement or in our website. Exists to glorify Him. To glorify Him. Bottom line. We're not here for members, membership, grow the church, have programs, 
now. To glorify Him. You know, James is not here today. So I'll kind of talk about him a little bit. You know, I'm just kind of being a third party here. You know, what is James doing? Is he crazy? I mean, he's leading this church. Not feeding people's appetite for entertainment. There's no show business in here at all. We have orange chairs. <laughs> you know, most of brothers, what do they love? Sports. What do we do? Get rid of sports program here. We used to be so good. You know, church used to get into I remember when our first turkey boy in 98. You know, church was so involved in sports. Brothers would play with pouring rain. We were good. We didn't let other teams score once. We won all games. We won the tournament. It was pouring rain. The sisters were there too. All of us, about 40, 50 of us. Pouring rain. Remember we had the tarp over us? But you know, the other thing Cornerstone does well at sports is eat. Pouring rain. We had tarp. About 30 of us had tarp over us and we were eating under our sandwiches under that. And after that we went and played the championship game and won. So what do we do? We take away those things. We got rid of the, tur- the sports program here. Cornerstone doesn't have a building. No interest. We love it here. Right? There's no drama. The musics are very boring. <laughs> in a worldly sense. In a worldly sense. I love it because we, we want to go towards the hymnals. We have only two guitars, one keyboard, no sound effects, lighting. We don't like PowerPoint presentation in Sunday worship. Bear like a little bit during the second hour. What is he doing? Can't give people what they want. Then furthermore, he tells a sin is missing the mark. Barely takes any tells any jokes on the pulpit. You know, personally, I disagree with him. I think we should tell more jokes on the pulpit. But you know, truthfully, I stand. I stood with him along every single of those decisions, but they were right. Because we don't want to compromise the Word of God. And seriously, as a church leader, as a co-leader that runs with him, that God help me. God help me and James. And I vow to protect the purity of Christ's church from influences of the postmodern society, giving what people want. We want to give what Christ wants, what he deserves. He is the cornerstone of this church. He is the owner. The deed on this church says Christ. Says, on this rock, he says, I will build my church. It is our commitment as leaders of this church, and I'm sure all of us or most of you are, are the members of this church. Our commitment is to honor Christ. What is to honor Christ? Honor the Word of God, equipping the saints so they will be sanctified and evangelized to the lost, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death. The wrath of God had to be appeased. We were condemned. But the answer was Jesus Christ, being God. He emptied Himself, humbled Himself, took on human form to die in obedience to His Father and understanding that we must repent, sinners must repent, that we are sin nature, that we have no way to come to God only by the faith that was granted to us by Him, that was imputed to only through 
Jesus Christ. Bottom line, our focus is following Christ, that our church, because it's His church, it belongs to Him. Therefore, any person, any member of this church, when we come to church, we must check our egos at the door. As we lead this church, I think, James, we are committed to continuing this philosophy of ministry. What did he preach last week? Said his passion for him is the Word of God, Psalm 19. You know, I love passionate people. You should do everything with passion, right? Said all else being equal, passion wins. Whether it is for anything else, but what more so for Christ? We are committed to honoring Christ through this church whether we have five people, ten people, hundred people, thousand people. As long as the word of God is preached and Christ is exalted, I want to be here to my dying days. You know, if we end up going, everybody ends up leaving, five people, ten people, it's okay. We have done it before, we'll do it again. As long as Christ is honored. We need to have high view of God, high view of the word of God, and high view of church. The church, people, is the chosen instrument to reveal His manifold wisdom unto the world. If church won't do it, who will? If we don't do it, who will? First Peter 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, It was not with perishable things, such silver or gold, that you were redeemed by an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. So why do we exist? To glorify Him. Glorify Him how? Three things to end the sermon. Number one, by upholding the Word. We do not exist to impress anyone. We do not strive to do anything else to please God, but to please God. It is God's agenda. Scripture, not anybody's agenda to grow. Our agenda is not to have a building, not to have a certain number. That is not our goal. It is our conviction that God will honor those who honors His Word. We, I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, Chariots of Fire. Eric Little is about to run his last race. He's getting warmed up, getting set in his starting block. And this American runner comes up and hands him a note. And he reads, God honors those who honor Him. And the authority of, of the church comes from the Word of God. In Acts 2, we see people being added to the church. How? By the preaching of the apostles. That's how your church is added. That's how you bring unbelievers to church. Not by programs. Not does at once say programs. Therefore, the authority in the church comes from the Word of God. Not by age not by title, not by economic status. Authority is based upon the qualifications of a leader. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Not by how much you do in the church. The leadership authority comes from the Word of God. Number two, we glorify Him through corporate sanctification. He said, salvation is individual. A sanctification is corporate. What is the highest point of fellowship, group sanctification in the church given to us? Ordinance. When we practice communion, right? That is the height of fellowship. 
As iron sharpens iron, we are to encourage, edify. True fellowship, involving prayer of one another, involves forgiving one another, encouraging one another, and rebuking one another, and keeping one another accountable. And lastly, we exist to glorify Him through evangelism. You know, when people in the first century evangelized, they risked imprisonment, prosecution, persecution, and prosecution, physical hardships, rejection by others. And we see a Kazakh pastor being rejected by his own wife. They pursue the evangelism with their lives. No, but the proper view of evangelism is also not just for the lost. Not just for the lost to come to Christ. We do it so that we are obedient. In obedience to Christ, we evangelize. The obedience to take on the Great Commission is more important. It is the heart condition that is important. As great as compassion should be, for unbelievers to be saved, even in light of that, even if there are family members, that we do it solely out of compassion for people, that won't go very long. But we must first do it out of our obedience to Christ. Because He is supreme. He is to be recognized as a supreme being. No one person, Peter or anybody else. You know, I read a book recently, arguably the greatest American, they say, the most decorated American in history of America is George Bush. Not George W. Bush, but his father, George Herbert Walker Bush. You know, George Bush, at 20, he enlisted in the Navy. He, became a, he came from a well-to-do home. His father, Prescott Bush, was very rich. George W.'s grandfather. At the age of 20, he enlisted, became the youngest Navy flyer in World War II. He was a diver, dive bomber. Those guys would go about to fly 10,000 feet, drop down to about 2,000, go straight down with everything trying to hit him. He dropped him at 2,000 feet and 1,000 feet, he would go up. On one mission with two other crewmen, he was hit. It was on fire, but he maneuvered so that his crew could get out, and he jumped out at last. And the two crew members, he doesn't know what happened to them. He said, the date doesn't go by where he doesn't think about them. He survived. They still happened to be God's will. There was, it happened to be an American submarine in the nearby area. He was saved. He later on went to attended Yale. He was a captain of the baseball team, the soccer team. He graduated the head of his class. He was a state representative from Texas. He was a uh, U.S. envoy to China, later became an ambassador to China. He was a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, became a state senator became CIA director, vice president twice, president. Then he raised a son who is a president now. And he um, got a, not a medal of honor, I think it was a uh, Navy Cross. I think second highest to his, the, the medal of honor for his bravery in the war. Arguably 
the greatest decorated American. However, as great as George Bush might have been, as great as Peter might have been in his life, there are no Christ. I know Christ of the Bible. No man measures up to him. That's why he owns this church. It's not by what people can do. People have other motives for doing what they do. But Christ was to be obedient to his Father, to sacrifice himself for the church. Therefore, he is the head. That's why we come here Sunday. If that's not the reason for you, then let's examine your heart. We need not have any ulterior motives other than that to glorify Him, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our Lord who has given us life, given us church. As we serve You, God, may we never take our eyes off of that fact. We know there are many programs, things that occur in the church. But the bottom line, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. May you be glorified in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Can the ushers please come forward?